was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Broadway musical director Ted Sperling. Among the many Broadway shows he has worked on include Falsettos, Sunday in the Park with George, My Fair Lady, Fiddler on the Roof, The King and I, My Favorite Year, Kiss of the Spider Woman, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, The Full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Light in the Piazza, and South Pacific. He also appeared on Broadway in Titanic. In addition to all of this, Ted is the artistic director of Master Voices, under whose umbrella he has presented concerts of such musicals as Of the I Sing, Let Him Eat Cake, and Lady in the Dark. And on this coming Thursday, March 10th, he will be conducting and presenting a concert of Anyone Can Whistle at Carnegie Hall, featuring Vanessa Williams, Elizabeth Stanley, and more. So make sure you buy your tickets for that. And now, without further ado, Ted Sperling. Well, so I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. I was always interested in music. That was my first real interest as a kid. Um, and so we had select albums at home, you know, LPs. And it included a few shows. So I think as a child, I was quite familiar with a few cast albums, particularly My Fair Lady, Fiddler on the Roof, and interestingly, a little bit later, 1776. <laughs> um, I also was uh, taken to the movies as a kid by my parents and my grandmothers, and a very vivid one for me was Mary Poppins, which came out in 1964 and I think must have played in the theaters for quite a long time, because I saw it as a kid, and I was only two then. But it made a really big impact on me. I became fascinated with that movie. I made my parents take me, I think, six times altogether. And I started drawing many pictures of Mary Poppins and various details of the movie. And if you think about it, Mary Poppins is sort of the perfect musical. Recently, I've actually been conducting performances of the score to that original movie with symphonies all around while the movie plays on a big screen with the orchestra part played live. So I, it's been really great after all this time to revisit that movie. And now I'm a dad, which of course I wasn't when I was two. And that movie is so much about the father yeah. and about how Mary Poppins really changes him much more than she changes the kids. Um, so it's been a wonderful circle for me. Um, then I started playing in pit orchestras in high school, junior high school and high school for my school shows. I was in a couple of shows as an actor as well. Um, so I started to get the bug. I actually music directed one show in high school. Um, and then I really fell in love with the theater in college. 
I befriended um, Victoria Clark. We were at school together. She already had this abiding interest in musicals. She wanted to direct them. She was directing them. Um, so we joined forces and we did a lot of shows in college together. And I took it upon myself to educate myself about musical theater. I didn't know that much. But Yale had a, a great uh, theater library. So I just started to read librettos, listen to cast albums, read those big anthologies about musical theater where you could read about every show that was ever done. Um, and I loved it. So that's really when I fell in love with the theater. And as a musical director, when you listen to cast albums, do you think you have a different perspective on it than the average person? Probably. Uh, even back then, I would take out the scores from the library and I would follow along as I listened. I learned a lot about orchestrations while I listened to those cast albums. A lot of the published scores, particularly the Sondheim ones, had a lot of information about the orchestrations, even though they weren't full orchestral scores, they were reduced piano scores, but they often had a third or fourth line in little tiny print to indicate who was playing what, and they had cues. So I, I don't think most people listen to cast albums following with the score and, and trying to learn about that particular art. <laughs> And so how did you enter the world of Broadway musical direction in the professional? Um, well, following in my friend Vicky's footsteps, she graduated a, a year ahead of me and she applied for a grant that used to exist that was given by a branch of the federal government to support internships or uh, mentorships in the, in the theater and in the opera world. Um, so she did one in the opera world um, and so she encouraged me to apply for one the following year when I was graduating, and I did. I, uh, I approached Paul Gimignani, who's, you know, dean of music directing these days in, in uh, Broadway, and um, had just done Sweeney Todd and Merrily on Broadway, among other shows, Dreamgirls. So I wrote to him and asked him if we could apply for this grant together, and I would be his intern, essentially, and then he would be my mentor. And at first he said no, because he didn't really, I don't think there was a model for that on Broadway, for somebody to be on a grant. You know, Broadway is really a commercial enterprise. People are paid to be there, paid to work. Um, but he did leave the door open just a smidge and said, if you'd like to meet me, you could come have, meet me during my lunch break. I'm rehearsing a new show. And so I said, I'll be there tomorrow. So I showed up tomorrow, the next day. And he changed his mind. I think he had spoken to Sondheim in, overnight. And Sondheim knew of my work at Yale a little bit because I'd done a couple of his shows there. And uh, he must have put in a good word because Paul said, let's do it. And we filled out the application on the spot. And um, I sent it in. And then I had to wait a while to see if I would get the grant. And ultimately, I didn't. Uh, and it was explained to me that they really wanted to give the grants to people working in the nonprofit world who otherwise would, there wouldn't be enough money to pay for these internships. Um, and they encouraged me to ask Paul for an actual job on the show. I didn't feel like I was you know, really in a position to do that. But when I next saw him, I went to play, oddly, I went to play Vicki Clark's audition for Sunday in the Park with George. And at the end of her audition, Paul called out to me from the house, because it was actually at the Booth Theater. And he said, Ted, would you just meet me in the wings for a minute? And he came up and he talked to me and he said, listen, if you don't get that grant, I'm going to hold a position for you just in case. 
And he did. I didn't get the grant. He gave me that position, and that's how I got my first job. So I was a rehearsal pianist and then synthesizer player for the original Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah. And what was your, what are your memories of Stephen Sondheim? And well, there are many. Um, the first one is when he actually came to visit at school when I was at Yale. He came to give a talk. And I talked my way into it because I didn't really have an invitation, and it was a very small event. So we were sitting in a living room, essentially, with him, you know, really close. And there were some people who came to do some performances for him and to maybe get some coachings. And I remember him being kind, but a bit firm. They, they did an a cappella version of You Could Drive a Person Crazy, which was quite ambitious. And it wasn't perfect, to be honest. And he, you know, he acknowledged that it wasn't perfect, but he did it in a very nice way. And then he asked, you know, if we had questions for him, and everybody was quite intimidated and nervous. Um, and because I was actually about to do a production of Side by Side at school, I had some questions. And so I worked up the nerve, and I just started asking them, and he answered them very kindly. And he, I think he gave me his mailing address, so I started writing to him. And he had a wonderful assistant uh, he, st he still has a wonderful assistant, but this was a different person back then, and she was very kind to young people like me and made it feel like it was okay to write to him, and he wrote back always, quite promptly. And um, So I remember him being, being a very generous, kind person, and then when we were working on Sunday, he again would occasionally pull me aside to give me advice, ask me how things were going, he said he remembered when he was Oscar Hammerstein's assistant on Allegro, and he felt like I was sort of in that same track. There's a story that um, Lapine, James Lapine, writes about in his book, Putting It Together, where I uh, really said something inappropriate in rehearsal for Sunny in the Park and got myself into big trouble. And Sondheim also, he, you know, he whisked me out of the theater to try to explain to me why what I did was so bad. But then he also, I, I think, you know, didn't want me to be too upset. He, uh, he comforted, me, comforted me as well, as did Paul. So you can read that anecdote in the book. I don't have to give it away here. <laughs> so I'd love to ask about your next show, which was Rosa, which was far less successful. And so what do you think was the problem with that show, or what do you think went wrong? I had a very strange experience on Rosa. And for those of your listeners who may not know much about the show, it was one of the shows that Hal Prince directed um, after Merrily. He had a string of, I think, five failures on Broadway before he had Phantom, which of course has been the biggest hit ever. Um, and Rosa was one of them. It was based on a French film called Madame Rosa that starred Simone Signoret, and she played the proprietress of a large sort of mixed household of ragamuffins and strays in, in a sort of down market part of Paris. So they decided to make it into a musical and they had a French composer, as my memory, who had never written for Broadway before. And when it came to Broadway, I got a call out of the blue and said, we need a new keyboard player for this Broadway show. Could you start tomorrow? 
And I happened to be available, and I said, sure. And I knew nothing about it. And so I showed up for rehearsal the next day, and it was an orchestra rehearsal for the show. So the show has already, had already done all of its cast rehearsals, pretty much. It was getting ready to move into the theater, and they were having their orchestra rehearsal. And it was a pretty small orchestra, and it had three keyboards. Um, this was an era in the late 80s when the shows started to have lots of keyboard parts. You know, in the old days, you'd have one. Maybe two pianos on a Rogers and Hart show or a Gershwin show. We generally had one piano, and sometimes you had no pianos at all, no keyboards, like all the Rogers and Hammerstein shows. Most of them have no piano. Um, but then suddenly, with synthesizers starting to flourish in the 80s, and Sunday in the Park with George and Katz were amongst the first to really start using synthesizers heavily, people started writing for more and more synthesizers. And I don't know why this show had three. Maybe. It had to supply, you know, have the minimum number of musicians for that theater. But there was actually no part for me to play. And apparently they had fired somebody the day before. Um, and so I showed up and they said, well, here's this keyboard two book. You're playing keyboard three. We don't want you to play what keyboard two is playing. We want you to play something different, but you have to make it up. <laughs> and I had never heard the music before. I hadn't been in any rehearsals or anything. And this French composer was there, and he would stand behind me, and he'd sort of hum, like, I want it a little more like this. And I would just play something. I made up my own part. Um, and that's how I got that show. Um, so I, I actually never saw it, because I was, the next thing I knew, I was in the pit. And we were in tech and previews. And uh, I was working with this wonderful music director, Louis St. Louis. And very interesting musicians. Ted Nash was in the orchestra. He's now sort of the premier saxophonist in the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, sort of a jazz star. Jamie Haddad was a percussionist who's also incredibly interesting playing all these exotic percussion instruments. Um, and something was clearly wrong with the show. I could tell it from the pit. I couldn't tell exactly what it was because I couldn't watch it. But I had this sinking feeling that this was not going to survive, and that, in fact, I was maybe not even going to enjoy playing it if it did. So I sort of made a little private pact with myself. It's like, if I'm not enjoying this, I don't have to do it. I, I didn't expect this job. It came out of the blue. I'm enjoying this little period, but if I don't like doing this night after night, I'm going to just hand it over to somebody else. And then it closed in a week or something like that, so I didn't have to make that decision. <laughs> um, but. I don't know, you'd have to ask somebody who really saw it maybe to know exactly what was wrong with it. And have you ever turned down a show? I have. Uh, I'm sure I've turned down more than one. The one that really, you know, was a big one was, was the Toronto production of Ragtime. Um, I had done two readings and a six-week workshop of the show at that point. Um, and the six-week workshop was really elaborate. It was fully staged. Um, and we were heading for a recording at the end of it with full orchestra. Um, and this was ahead of any full production. And I, I had a rough time on that show. I had a rough time with the producer. I was not feeling particularly um, respected by him. Not by the team on the show was wonderful. And I was enjoying the show itself very much. It's a wonderful show, of course. Uh, but I was feeling this conflict with the producer, and it was making me really uncomfortable. And 
if I stayed with the show, it meant a long period back up in Toronto, away from home. And I just took a hard look and I said, do I really want to stay working with this person? And do I really, is it worth being in Toronto for all this time? And I made the hard decision to leave the show. And my agent um, was this wonderful woman named Helen Merrill and I had all these sort of anguished conversations from Toronto to New York. And the, the, the producer was talking to her and saying, just talk sense into him. Doesn't he know what he's about to give up? And she and I went back and forth and I finally just, I actually I also went to dinner. I, I, I sort of pulled in some close buddies of mine on the show, including Marin Maisie and LaChance, who were both doing it with me. And we had a dinner where I really just sort of opened up to them and, and explained my struggle. And they said, you know, you have to do what you need to do. Um, and so I ultimately I quit that show and it was painful. Um, and I didn't feel good about it. And I, and I, I was actually about to leave during the middle of the workshop because of it. And my agent said, don't do that. And I said, well, I don't have to, but I'd like something in return for staying. And I said, I'd like to make sure that I conduct that album. Oh. So I agreed to stay for the rest of the workshop and as long as I got to conduct that album, which I did. And then, then of course, the show came to New York and I had been sort of expecting to do it and I suddenly had nothing to do. So I heard that there was, um, a role, I, th I heard the Titanic was coming to Broadway and I knew the composer, Maury Eston from school. He was a professor at Yale. So I wrote to him and I said, I'd be interested in music directing this if you need somebody and I didn't hear back from him. And it turned out that Janine Tesori was the music director at that point. And they had done a, a reading or a workshop of the show with her leading it. And then she wrote to me and she said, Ted, um, someone else is gonna music direct this, not me and not you, but um, they're looking for someone who can play violin, piano, sing, and act. And I think you should audition because I think you'd really love working with the director, Richard Jones. And so at that point, I was actually starting to do some directing myself. And I thought, what a good idea to be directed by a good director and feel what it's like to be in the actor's shoes for a change. So I prepared an audition. It was actually quite difficult. I had to memorize a a Shaw or a Shakespeare monologue with a British accent and I had very little time to find one and practice it and Victoria Clark coached me on my accent. Um, and then I had to prepare a song and something to play on the violin and the piano and I, I pulled all that together very quickly, auditioned and I got the job. So instead of doing ragtime, I did Titanic. So in some ways it, you know, it worked out for the best. And what was that experience like with Richard Jones? Oh, it was fascinating. Um, Richard uh, is best known for directing opera. Uh, he has directed a few musicals. This was his first Broadway one. And he knew that I had done a lot of Broadway shows at that point. So occasionally he would come to me for advice, actually. How do I handle this? I'm not used to working in this arena. Not, not artistically so much, but more like the backstage stuff. And then, um, because I had almost no acting experience at all, I ended up modeling my character on him. Um, and I think that was pretty successful. He asked me to take some dancing classes in the preparation for the show, just to work on my posture and my, my um, even just like my walking. So I found that very interesting. And then that show was, you know, I, you've probably talked to other people who worked on it. Um, it was a rather fraught rehearsal process. 
uh, most of us had not been in the workshop. It was a cast of 40, and I think they'd done the workshop with something like 12 people, and not even all of those were in the ultimate show. So there were 40 people, and they were trying to tell 40 separate stories in that show, so that you'd really get to know all the people on the Titanic at some level. But 40 stories is a lot to cram into one evening, and they had to start making some choices about where to put the emphasis. And that was hard on the company because we started as a real ensemble and then certain people's roles started to get bigger and other people's roles started to get smaller and it's just painful and it was particularly happening during previews, which is a very pressured way to make changes. You know, you only get a few hours each afternoon for maybe three afternoons a week. You have to put those changes in often that same night. And so it felt like we were coming to the theater sort of waiting to find out whose part got cut today. And, and that was, you know, was really difficult. But we hung together and we had a wonderful spirit as a company. We had difficult previews. We had previews when the set wouldn't work. We had to stop. Um, but ultimately we won the Tony that year and had a nice long run. So it was, I think, ultimately a very happy experience for most of us. Yeah. And so I'd love to ask you about your collaboration with William Finn, who you were on falsettos and New Brain. And yes, I did quite a few projects with Bill. Um, the first one was a show called Romance in Hard Times at the Public Theater, which we did a workshop production of, which was open to the public in one theater, in the Osbacher, and then we did a, the ultimate production at the Newman Theater, you know, where Hamilton started. Um, and that was a wild show with fantastic music and, and people still don't really know it because it, it had a rel relatively short run there and we never made a cast album. But Lilius White was the star of both of the versions that I did. She was amazing, of course. And she was you know, quite young at the time. Um, Victor Trent Cook was in it, who had just won Star Search. Um, Cleavant Derricks was in it, who had been recently in Dreamgirls, playing one of the leads in that. Um, and that was a real eye-opening experience for me. I was one of the first things I was really in charge of that was brand new. I was doing all the vocal arrangements, which were extensive in that show. We had tons of complicated ensemble pieces in that, and including quite a few in the gospel style, which was something I had never done before. Um, so I learned a lot on that show. And ultimately, it was a heartbreaker because it didn't, it didn't you know, move to Broadway or have this big life afterwards. But Bill and I stayed quite close, and I, I continued to work with him. I did do a new brain with him at Lincoln Center, and then I also did um, Falsetto Land off-Broadway at the Lortel, and then Falsettos on Broadway. Um, and Bill has a unique style, which is one of the things that I love about him. His music doesn't sound like anybody else's. He has a unique method of writing it, which is sort of like in increments and you don't get a beautifully handwritten version of it when it's done. He, he really relies on other people to notate his stuff. I think he may be still, but certainly back then. On A New Brain, I actually asked if we could get somebody else to do that because it was such a big job and I was juggling too many things. So Jason Robert Brown was actually the person who notated um, A New Brain and who basically did a lot of the arranging on that show as well before Michael Starobin orchestrated it. And then Bill had had this very scary medical episode which led him to write A New Brain where he was wondering if his brain would ever be the same, if he would ever be the same person he had been 
So it was very moving to do that show for him because it was so autobiographical. How do you usually get hired for jobs as a musical director? Is it usually because it's a composer you've worked with before? Or? It's either a composer or a director usually. Yeah. Or, and it may not be somebody I worked with before because if that were the case, I'd only work on one <laughs> yeah. thing, right? Um, so, you know, your reputation hopefully spreads and people want to work with you. Um, I made a concerted effort um, to find my own family of collaborators and particularly people my my age, because when I started, I was the youngster and I was working with people like Hal Prince and James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim. Um, and I loved that and it was a fantastic education, but I wanted to work on new shows and I thought it would be appropriate for me to find people my age who hadn't developed this long standing relationship with another music director already. You know, um, Sondheim had Paul. Ultimately, I did music direct one of his shows, Wise Guys, but I figured he has Paul, he doesn't really need me. Who needs me? And so that's when I went to Adam Gettle and Ricky Gordon and Michael John Lacusa and Janine and Bill and Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aarons and started working with all these people who were pretty much in my age range and who were starting out as I was. So that was, that was a conscious decision to say, I'm going to be their Paul Gimignani. Yeah. And I'd love to ask specifically about the light in the piazza. Mm -hmm. Adam Kettle. What about it? Oh, well, oh, I'd be curious to know if there were a lot of changes made to that show. Uh -huh. Yes, there were. Um, so, you know, I had worked with Adam already on Floyd Collins and Myths and Hymns. And I remember being extremely excited when I first started hearing some of the music for Piazza. Um, I mean, I was excited for all, all three of those shows. Every time it's something new, came off of his desk, it was like a little miracle. And I would dance around in my apartment listening to him sing it. Um, Piazza was obviously gonna be a big challenge just to play because the piano parts were very ornate and um, elaborate. So I remember on my way to the first workshop, I guess, I don't know. I remember visiting a friend at the Aspen Music Festival and asking, could I borrow a rehearsal room for a few hours each day just to practice this music because um, normally I don't really have to practice stuff before I play it, but that show, I really did. Um, so we did a couple of readings uh, of the show. We went to Sundance, the Sundance uh, Laboratory, I forget what it's called officially, but uh, we actually went to Sundance in um, Utah and uh, had a sort of a magical couple of weeks there working on the show. Um, and some big changes happened then. Uh, Michael Greif actually directed that particular reading. And um, a wonderful singer, cabaret artist named Mary Claire Heron was playing Margaret at that point. And she had a very low voice. So we spent a lot of time trying to just to figure out what keys were going to work for her. So we, you know, you wouldn't recognize the songs in those versions. Um, and I remember Dividing Day, for example, in that version was written to be for the American husband and he was going to have that song and he was going to sing it after the phone call with his wife and he was going to wonder what happened to my wife like what what ha she went away to Italy and then now I don't recognize her and he was supposed to sing it on the golf course while playing golf and whistling um, and I remember them we, we did a read through up there and no reflection on the actor who played the part, but at the end of that day, we just looked at each other like, do we really care enough about this character for him to have this biggest song in this prominent spot of act one? 
And the feeling was like, no, frankly, it'd be better if this character were just a voice on the phone, basically. And so that song became Margaret's. And then it changed because it was written to be more of a man's song. It had a guitar accompaniment, which you can hear some places. I think Adams recorded the original version. It had a very different feel. It was a little bit more of a Latin feel on the guitar. And it had a whistling interlude. Uh, and then when we reconceived it for Margaret, it changed to be um, a harp accompaniment with pizzicato strings, very different rhythm, um, and with these beautiful counter melodies on the, in the orchestra instead of the whistling. So that's just one example of a change. But yes, there were many changes. And the first production was in Seattle at the Intamon Theater where Bart Shear was the artistic director, but Bart didn't direct it. Craig Lucas directed that first production and it was very beautiful um, and completely different from what the version we all saw in New York was. Um, we had a little tiny orchestra and we were on stage in costumes, like pretending to smoke and drink and serenading people as they walked by. Um, it was a very abstract set. Uh, Margaret had a big, long monologue scene where she goes to see a priest and just unloads on the priest all that's been going on and what's wrong with Clara and how guilty she feels about it. And it was very operatic. And Vicky learned it very quickly. Vicky had now joined the cast at the point. Um, and you can hear there are recordings of that, too. It's quite fascinating. Um, but ultimately, that got cut way back down to just the reprise of The Beauty Is. Um, and the other big change we made in that show is that Fable was not originally going to be the last song of the show. It was going to follow The Light in the Piazza. So in, if you know the plot, which I'm, I'm sure you do, um, the, most of the show takes place in Florence, where the young girl in the show falls in love with an Italian boy. And then Margaret, the mother, decides she has to stop the affair from happening. And she abruptly takes her daughter to Rome which was not in the planned itinerary. And the daughter is miserable, and she doesn't understand why her mother won't support this love affair of hers. And she finally bursts into song. Her mother's showing her all the sights of Rome and saying, look, I see how the sun glints off the statue here. And she says, I don't see it here. I don't see what you see. My heart's in Florence, and I want to go back there. And she sings the light in the piazza. And it's a stunning moment. And then she leaves, the daughter leaves, and Margaret is left with this dilemma, what to do. Her husband has clearly said to her, do not let this happen. She herself is torn. And at that point, she sang Fable in the first reading, which is like, you may think that there's this fairy tale romance ahead of you, but I know better. I've been through life. Life is not a fairy tale. That's what Fable was saying at that point. And she was saying, all right, we'll go back, but watch out. And that's what that song was. And so those two amazing songs, back to back, with no dialogue in between, really. And remember that we had Mary Clear Heron, Hannon, Heron doing it the part, and she wasn't quite on top of the song yet, because it was a very hard song, and we were playing with the keys and stuff. And uh, the decision was made that those two songs back to back were too much. And so they moved Fable to the end of the show right then and there, and it stayed there the rest of the time. And ultimately, I wondered whether that was a decision that maybe was a little hasty, because I think the song 
made a ton of sense there. That's what it was written for. And I wondered if we could have kept it there ultimately and then reprised it at the end. So that it was a song you had already heard and could appreciate in a new way at the end where she says, instead of saying, this is not gonna work out, which is basically how the original fable ended, she had changed her mind and said, may it last forever, could take on a completely different um, meaning in a reprise. So I don't, I don't think it will ever happen, but that's sort of my, <laughs> my personal take on it all these years later. And having worked on so many of Adam Ghetto's shows and also so many Richard Rogers shows, do you see any sort of similarity between their music or? You know, I haven't been looking for that all this time. I've been taking them as individuals and who have their own lives, their, their own trajectories, their own work. Um, and I know Adam, you know, is proud of his grandfather, but also doesn't want to be conflated with him. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the big similarity is that they both really understood writing for character, or both, Adam still does, um, that they're, they're, they had tremendous facility and great command of music, but they put it in the service of writing for specific characters in a specific time and place, and I think that that's particular genius. Yeah. And another person who you've collaborated with a lot, who you actually mentioned, was Bartlett Cher. And yeah. what is he like as a director? <laughs> well, I'm sure you can um, find lots of interviews with Bart online and get a, a really good sense of him from those. He, um, you know, he's a wonderful director, and I've done many, many shows with him. Uh, he also has this big background in opera. I think he had directed opera before he did a, a Broadway show. Um, and he has all this experience with Shakespeare, and he had wonderful mentors growing up himself. Um, so I think at some very basic level, he's musical. And I think that is the trait that stands him in great stead when he directs a musical, because he appreciates the role that music is playing. He can recognize when something's working musically or not. He, even in the audition process, he will be the first person to say, oh, that person can't sing it, or could we possibly get this person to sing it well? And he's very understanding of that process. He loves to start with the text, as you know, many great directors do. He doesn't necessarily come with an imposed vision. He wants it to arise out of really careful examinations of how the show was written. He loves to delve into earlier versions. So you'll see in South Pacific, he put some stuff back that had been removed during previews or even in the writing process. Um, I think he was very helpful on Piazza because that was, show was brand new and there were many decisions to be made about the writing. Um, and he, you know, as all of us aspire to be, he's a good collaborator. I think most of us go into this particular niche because we love working with other people and we love bouncing ideas around, fighting about them, resolving those fights. If you're a playwright, you're basically a solitary artist, you know. You, you have to write the play by yourself. Even, and then even if you're writing straight plays, you're writing the play by yourself, and then your only collaborator is really the director. Um, in the musical theater, it's a big web of people putting the show together, and everybody has to be working on the same page. And um, when I went to see Hamilton, for example, I, I was struck by that. I said, everybody on this show is aiming for the same thing, and their, their work is so seamlessly integrated with each other's that it's a marvel to watch. 
Um, so I think that's what we all aim for. And the shows that don't succeed are usually the ones that that doesn't gel. You know, that, that somehow we're working on two different shows at the same time. We don't realize it until too, it's too late. Or... So one of the shows you worked on with him was My Fair Lady. And I'd be curious to ask about the casting process for that, because I remember how much, like, speculation there was over. Right, well, we had done a number of shows with Kelly as the lead, and I think there was a certain expectation that she'd play Eliza. Um, and I think at a certain point, Bart was interested in just throwing the doors open to other possibilities, and perhaps casting somebody younger, or casting a person of color. Um, so we just had a very extensive audition process for that. And we narrowed it down to a handful of people to show um, the representatives of the estates, because when you're dealing with the revival and the composer and the lyricist are no longer with us, then it becomes the province of the lawyers or the children of, you know, to make, to give approvals. They usually want approvals in their contracts. You can do My Fair Lady, but I want to approve the casting of the three principal roles or something like that. So then you usually have to do a, a callback situation where you parade those candidates in front of those representatives. And I remember we did have five, and um, Lauren Ambrose, who had worked with Bart before on Awake and Sing, um, entered the process very late. I don't know why exactly, but she wasn't one of those people we auditioned at first. She had just had one audition before this. But I remember we saved her for last, I think, that day, and she just really blew everybody out of their seats in her audition. She was so powerful. Um, and she has this wonderful voice that people hadn't really heard before. She trained operatically. I apologize for the noise. Um, you know, casting process for any show is a very elaborate, long process. And we didn't do any real workshops or anything for My Fair Lady, so the auditions for the production were really the first time we were considering people seriously. Um, and when you do a show that's so much about accents and you know, London, I think it's natural to, to think about casting some people from London in it, and that's ultimately what we did in three very important parts. And, and now we just went through the same thing, we're doing it in London in the spring, so we had a, a whole new casting process there, and we just finally announced the cast just yesterday, I think. And so um, before we uh, do have to go, I'd love to talk about um, Master Voices, and oh, so yeah. how did it come into your life at first? It's a, it's a fun story, actually. Um, I had done uh, Man of No Importance, a show by Stephen Flaherty, Lynn Aarons, and Terrence McNally at Lincoln Center with Roger Reese playing the leading role. And so Roger was, you know, beloved by everybody who worked with him and knew him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, and we lost him way too young. Uh, so he and I developed a friendship, and I ran into him at just a casual you know, coffee shop kind of place in Times Square one day. And I had just read that he was directing a concert of a very obscure Kurt Weill Ira Gershwin musical called The Firebrand of Florence. And that was a show almost nobody knew except me, because I'd been sort of mad about that show and wanting to do it for two decades already, at least at that point. I tried to do a concert version in the 80s, and I'd gotten all the permissions from the Kurt Weill estate. I had met with the keeper of the of the key to that show, basically, and gotten her permission. But I was young, and I didn't have any framework in which to pull this off, and I had to abandon it. And there was no encores yet or anything like that. Um, 
So then I read this announcement that the Collegiate Chorale was doing Firebrand of Florence with Roger Rees directing. And I was both elated to hear that somebody was finally going to do that show, but then crushed that it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, it's like after all this. And I only had myself to blame. I hadn't done it, you know. So I said to Roger, I'm both, you know, delighted and crushed to hear this. And he said, well, don't be crushed yet because uh, I think Paul Gimignani was supposed to conduct it. And he ended up having a conflict. So Roger said, do you want to conduct it? I said, yes. And that was my first experience with the group. <clears throat> and in a wonderful coincidence, Vicki Clark was cast in it. Um, so I had her to, to be with and Roger directed it. And it was... Uh, it was a little tricky because we were doing the first thing in the newly renovated Alice Tully Hall with the pit, which had never been there before, and the acoustics were very tricky to figure out, and we finally did. Um, so when that was done, I, um, I asked for a meeting with the executive director, Jennifer Collins, just to follow up on it. And in that conversation, I said I had a few other ideas for the group, including The Grapes of Wrath, which I had seen the premiere of in Milwaukee and fell in love with. And I said, this would be a great project for this group, and she agreed. So we scheduled it, I think, for the next season. And that began a regular pattern of my being a guest conductor with the group. And then ultimately, um, the board came to me and asked if I would come on as a full-time you know, artistic director, and I agreed. And so how did the idea for this season's Anyone Can Whistle? Well, we tend to do one musical theater project each season. Um, and we look for things that are fairly big in scope that could have a full orchestra, full chorus, a, a, you know, a bunch of principal actors, and something that may not be done at encores or may not be done in New York very often. So we've done things like Song of Norway or Babes in Toyland or Let Em Eat Cake or Firebrand of Florence, you know? Um, and anyone could whistle, to me, felt in that category of somewhat neglected masterpieces. Um, and I also try to pick things that have some bearing on what's going on in our world at this moment. And for me, a show about conformity, about society feeling threatened by people who are not conforming, which is who, how I view the cookies in Anyone Can Whistle. They're, they're described as the socially pressured. They're described people who want individual lives and that somehow they're being locked up for that. Um, I thought that was in this moment when we're going through yet another sort of civil rights um, explosion, really, of people asking to be able to live their lives the way they want to um, and getting resistance. I thought this show was very pertinent. It also is a show about, you know, corruption in government, which we've seen a lot of recently, and about the dangers of authoritarianism, you know, putting your faith in one leader, which in, in the beginning of the show is the mayor and then becomes half good halfway through. Um, and both are dangerous, you know, and he's not even who he says he is. So I thought the themes were very relevant. And then of course, I love Sondheim. I would happily do any of his shows anytime. Uh, I had talked to Steve about this production, gotten his blessing to do it, which is actually not to be taken for granted. You can't just mount a New York production of Anyone Can Whistle just because you feel like it. You have to be given permission. And uh, I was consulting with him about things and I had a lot more questions to ask him and unfortunately won't get the chance to have his answers, but I'm trying to do my best. Yeah. And so the last question I'd love to ask you is, um, what, with such a legendary career in the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? You know, um, 
Good question, but a hard question to answer because everybody's going to have his or her own path. Um, I think, first of all, you have to really love it and want this lifestyle. I, I talk to young people a lot about what kind of life do you want? Because your choice of career can have such a big impact on your personal life. You know, do you love to travel, for example? Are you somebody who can pick up and go and do a regional theater production for three months and that's no problem? Is that, and that's what you love. Um, or do you need to stay home a lot and, and raise a family, you know, or, you know, whatever. Uh, so that's one thing. I think you have to really love it because it's not an easy path um, for most people. You have to really keep pushing and, and facing rejection. And so it has to be your love of it that keeps you going. Um, and then I also think what I did, I would advise other people to do is find your circle. Um, find a family of theater people that you're going to work with over and over again. Because that gives you some stability. That gives you um, stimulation. Um, and I hope that each young group of people will start finding their own version of what musical theater is and keep building this art form so it doesn't become stagnant. You know, that hopefully each generation reinvigorates the art form. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been sure. nice to talk to you. Thanks for having thank me. And I listeners, thank you for tuning in. This is one more reminder that if you liked what you heard, please go to your Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. And make sure to come back next time for a momentous occasion, Backstage Babble's 100th episode. That's right, it is now the 100th of these interviews, and I could not be prouder to share with you my conversation with a very special surprise guest. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.